From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's four, 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 triple, triple, triple Z. Hello and welcome to the Radio in Colour series. I'm your host, Ola Sheehan. In the 1990s, the land rights and environment movements made some important legal gains. After 10 years in the courts, the 1992 Marbo versus Queensland court decision to grant land rights to the people of the Murray Islands helped increase the rights and recognition of Australia's Indigenous people, but not without a lot of national argument. In the 1990s, Queensland achieved notoriety as having a rate of deforestation greater than the Amazon and the highest rate of deforestation in the Western world. A change of government made it possible to see some legislative protection for forests. Four Triple Z's environment shows, the Peace and Environment Show and Eco Radio were participants in the grassroots activism of these struggles while reporting those stories the mainstream media ignored. First, we look at the Mabo decision and how it was perceived by the nation. Down Sydney Cove, the first boat people land, and they say, Sorry, boys, I gained your loss. Where can I steal your land? And if you break out your British law, for sure you're gonna hang. Or work your life like our convicts with the chain on your neck and hands. And they told us, Oh, black woman, that shall not steal. Hey, yeah, black man, thou shalt not steal. We're gonna civilize black barbaric life. Teach you how to kneel. But your history couldn't hide genocide. The fuck was Cedar Wilson's fear? Why your Jesus said you're supposed to give the oppressed a better deal? We say to you, yes, our land, thou shalt not steal. On the 3rd of June 1992, the High Court forever extinguished a fundamental lie that had been used to build colonial society in Australia. It was the lie that at the time of white settlement, Australia was terra nullius, which translates as nobody's land. Now the court didn't review this idea by themselves. They didn't decide one day that this whole idea was a bit shonky and in need of investigation. The decision was brought on by a case launched by Eddie Marbo and his lawyers Greg McIntyre, Ron Carsten and Brian Keon Cohen. Eddie Kwoki Marbo was born on Mer Island in the Torres Strait in 1936. He moved to Townsville in 1959 and held a variety of jobs including working on purling boats, cutting cane and as a railway fettler. Eddie Marbo became interested in land rights after taking part in the 1967 referendum campaign. He continues work and helped co-fund one of the first black community schools in Townsville in 1973. Through his work, he was asked to advise the federal government on education for Aboriginal students in 1975. He maintained an interest in land rights 
and spoke at a conference at James Cook University in 1981, where he explained the traditional system of land ownership on Mer Island. Listening to the speech, a lawyer in the audience suggested they could use an example of Mer Island to claim land rights through the court system. Perth-based solicitor Greg McIntyre agreed to take the case and on the 20th of May 1982, the famous Marbo case was launched. It would take 10 years to go through the system when the High Court brought down its judgment that a form of native title still existed to this day, changing the law of the land to recognise the interests of traditional owners. And the rest you could say is history. Because I knew Uncle Eddie, uh, I, was, I was very fortunate that I grew up around um, the great leaders of the 50s and 60s. Uh, and Uncle Eddie, uh, I met on a number of occasions. Also met Uncle Vincent Lingiari from the Grinji people uh, when, he, when he came through Brisbane in the mid-60s. Um, so the Marbo decision, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, the fact that, uh, the fact that uh, Joe Bajalki Peterson steadfastly refused to um, engage with the, the concept and principles underpinning the Marbo case. Um, the fact that Uncle Eddie and his group of fellow plaintiffs had to spend 10 years trying to advance the case through the Queensland courts, finally kicked down to the High Court and uh, on June the 3rd, 1992, the High Court, by majority decision of uh, 6 to 1, the one dissenting judge was the Queenslander, um, found for Uncle Eddie and uh, found that, because uh, what what, when I started law school in 1970, um, I then, and Catherine and I got married in, in 71, 72, I got a job as um, as a law clerk and, uh, and we um, had to, uh, our biggest, biggest part of the practice was conveyancing, so I used to have to go down to um, the titles office in Adelaide Street every day and I would do 10 to 15 property settlements a day so I'd have to search the, um, the property portfolios and I'd go back to, and I, I started to wonder just exactly uh, how these, this property system worked and went right back through to his portfolios. So every bit of land in Queensland was, was recorded on these on those portfolios, and uh, every every uh, transfer during the from the time of original survey was recorded in this portfolio. So I was wondering where was the transmission of, of title, the transfer of title from my mob to the British Crown, uh, and there was never, of course, there was never one. So, and that's from so late sixties, early seventies. I really started to put these questions to my lecturers out there at Uni Queensland. Uh, never got any answer, of course, uh, because uh, your land was conquered, you know, <laughs> that's the end of the story. So, um, And that's when I started to read up on this whole concept of treaty, Treaty of Waitangi and New Zealand, 
series of treaties that they uh, and the states uh, and um, and like I said, this kept posed that question. Um, and I followed Uncle Eddie's, because Uncle Eddie was based here in Brisbane during the course of his case, uh, right the way through from uh, 82 to 92. And then he finally had to take the case down to uh, Canberra. But very sadly, Uncle Eddie had uh, terminal cancer by that time. And he, he died in, uh, I think it was March uh, 92. Um, and then the decision came down in June 92. And, uh, and the, it's, a, it's a very complex decision, but um, in summarising it, um, lawyers were able to explain to me that uh, this essentially rejects the proposition that, uh, that James Cook, uh, on behalf of the British Admiralty at the time, did not have the legal authority to universally extinguish uh, the native title rights of Uncle Eddie Marbo and his seven fellow plaintiffs to their native title rights up there on the Mare Island. So the, the battle from then, of course, has been to to transport that decision across to, to the mainland. But that, that is good enough for us that, uh, that uh, we'd, we'd won. I, I, still, I, I still don't think it's a golden bullet that we're, we're seeking because it's still, you know, going from Caesar to Caesar. We're still doing this within the confines of the British legal system. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I'd rather have the matter dealt with by Aboriginal law and that's L-O-R-E and L-A-W, because at no time uh, have any of my tribal nations ever surrendered or ceded sovereignty to the British Crown. So that's that one big issue that we need to overcome before uh, we can treat with each other on an equal basis. So, treaty now. Um, and that, so that's been, you know, just went from... Back in the 90s, 1970-71, we went from there to the Black Panther Party, from there to the Aboriginal Embassy, and right the way through the 70s, 80s, 90s, up to the present day. And we're still pursuing that uh, that angle. Kath and I went to Canberra uh, two weeks ago to attend a, uh, a big workshop down there around this issue of treaty. So, um, treaty and sovereignty are the two big issues of the day for the Aboriginal political movement. What do you think it's going to take for a government to do a treaty? Oh, they'll never do it, of course, because they're totally dominated by the farmers and the uh, and the miners. So, but it's something that uh, we will continue to, uh, to to fight for. That'll be our our banner uh, treaty now. Yeah, um, he's passed on now, but his name was Kevin Gilbert, 
and in 72, Billy McMahon gave a speech from Parliament House here saying that Aboriginal people would only get leases on their own land and that sort of stirred the hornet's nest up in Sydney and Kevin along with um, people like Michael Anderson and Tony Curry, um, Billy Craigie and Bertie Williams, they um, decided that the protest should come to Canberra mm. instead of Sydney. So four young men came down in a car and set up the camp here overnight on the 26th, it's actually the 27th of January, and they had a beach umbrella. From there it, it grew, um, the Quakers came in and uh, donated a tent, and then over the months they um, created a lot of international press and that really opened up the One. issue because um, the police came in like the Gestapo, just hundreds of police marched in in formation to break up the camp yeah. and all that was filmed and it went out around the world and that alerted the rest of the world that something really terrible was happening in Australia and a lot of countries think Australia is a white land, white country but because that's the propaganda that's gone out from Australia but that sort of cracked it and people realised well there's actually a black race that belongs here first. The treatment for Aboriginal people still is horrendous and it's so bad it's actually a genocide. So what are the parliamentarians, what, what's their reaction been to the tendency being? Um, they've the always got a policy of removing it, mm. they've passed laws to remove it but they can't. It's actually classified as an illegal structure on Commonwealth land but they're also very aware that it's a, it's a national icon for the struggle, Aboriginal struggle in Australia, and that if they really moved it, it would ignite the communities right around the country and they'll be here in its defence, because it's in everyone's heart. The starting point might be to recognise that the problem starts with us, the non-Aboriginal Australians. It begins, I think, with an act of recognition. Recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. We took the traditional lands and smashed the traditional way of life. We brought the diseases and the alcohol. We committed the murders. We took the children from their mothers. We practiced discrimination and exclusion. It was our ignorance, ignorance and our prejudice and our failure to imagine that these things could be done to us. With some noble exceptions, we fail to make the most basic human response and enter into their hearts and minds. We fail to ask, how would I feel if this was done to me? As a consequence, we fail to see that what we were doing degraded us all. If we need a reminder of this, we received it in this year with the report of the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which showed with devastating clarity that the past lives on in inequality, racism and injustice. 
in the prejudice and ignorance of non-Aboriginal Australians and in the demoralisation and desperation, the fractured identity of so many Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. For all this, I do not believe that the report should fill us with guilt. Down the years, there's been no shortage of guilt, but it has not produced the response we need. Guilt, I think we've all learned, is not a very constructive emotion. I think what we need to do is to open our hearts a bit, all of us. Perhaps when we recognise what we have in common, we will see the things which must be done, the practical things. We have to give meaning to justice and equity, and as I've said several times this year, we will only give them meaning when we commit ourselves to achieving concrete results. If we improve the living conditions in one town, they will improve in another and another. If we raise the standard of health by 20% one year, it'll be raised more the next. If we open one door, others will follow. When we see improvement, we will see more dignity, more confidence, more happiness, we will know we're going to win. We will need these practical building blocks of change. As Sol said, the Mabo judgment should be seen as one of these. By doing away with a bizarre concept that this continent had no owners prior to the settlement of Europeans, Mabo establishes a fundamental truth and lays the basis for justice. It'll be much easier to work from that basis than it's ever been from any case in the past. For that reason alone, we should ignore the isolated, the isolated outbreaks of hysteria and hostility to Mabo, which we've heard in the past few months. Mabo is an historic decision. We can make it an historic turning point, the basis of a new relationship between Indigenous and non-Aboriginal Australians. The message should be that there's nothing to fear or to lose in the recognition of historical truth or the extension of social justice or the deepening of Australian social democracy to include Indigenous Australians. In fact, as all of us I think here know, there's everything to gain. Man, thou shalt not sleep. We're gonna civilize your black barbaric lives and we teach you how to kneel. But your history couldn't hide the genocide. Hypocrisy to us was real. Why your Jesus said you're supposed to give the oppressed a better deal. We see to you, yes, white man, thou shalt not steal. Oh, yeah, I That blazing sun go down behind a cold tree mountain ridge. The land's out, heritage and spirit here. The rightful culture's black. And we're sitting here just wondering when we're gonna.
gonna get that land back they taught us. Whoa, black woman, thou shalt not steal. Yeah, black man, thou shalt not steal. We're gonna civilize you, black barbaric lives, and we teach you how to kneel. But your history couldn't hide the genocide. Oh yeah, Jesus said you're supposed to give the old prince a bit of deal. We see to you, this white man that shall not steal. Whoa, here I land, Well, you talk of conservation, forest, pristine green. In 200 years, your materialism has stripped the forest clean. And the racist Contradiction that's understood by none, mostly that left hand holds the Bible, right hand holds a gun, and they taught us, Oh, black woman, thou shalt not steal. Queensland has often been a battleground between developers and conservationists in the last 40 years. The sheer size of the state protected a lot of Queensland's forested areas during early European settlement. However, the Joe Bjocchi peterson era, from 1968 to 1989, heralded a time of rapid exploitation of the state's mineral resources and expansion of the grazing industry. With the Great Barrier Reef and World Heritage Rainforest, Queensland's natural areas still only gained limited protection from exploitation until the 1990s when a Labor government greatly increased protected areas as national parks with the 1992 Nature Conservation Act. In 1969, the Queensland Conservation Council formed to represent the many smaller environment groups that had sprung up all over the state. Partly in response to Joe's policies, but also part of a rising global awareness that humans were impacting the natural world in detrimental ways. Australians seem to be growing in awareness and appreciation of the land in which they were living, as historian Frank Bongiorno explains. The controversy over the building of uh, the Franklin Dam in, in the early 1980s remains, I guess, the greatest environmental struggle in Australian history. So it was a proposal by initially the Tasmanian Labor government, actually, to build uh, another dam. There, there are many others for hydroelectricity. And on this occasion, there was a much more stringent and much more aggressive protest against that, not only in Tasmania itself, but much more broadly um, in, in Australia, led by the Tasmanian Wilderness Society, whose director was, was Dr Bob Brown, who obviously became a very successful Greens politician 
a little later, but he, he led a protest. The, the climax of that protest was really the summer of 1982-83, where hundreds, indeed probably thousands of protesters descended on that part of, of Tasmania from all over Australia and uh, sought to hinder the construction of that dam, you know, were arrested in many cases. Brown himself spent one Christmas in prison. By 1982, the federal Labor government had said that it would oppose the dam. The Labor government in Tasmania had actually fallen over the Franklin Dam issue, and so it was a Liberal government in Tasmania confronting, uh, from March 1983, a Labor government federally that was committed to stopping the dam. The uh, government immediately took measures to, to stop it when it came to office in March '83, but it was eventually decided in the High Court and a, a stop was put to the dam and, and the Franklin was saved. So it was an emblematic environmental dispute of the early 1980s and yeah, really set the tone, I think, for a lot of environmental struggles of that period. There were battles over the tropical forests in Queensland, there were battles over the, uh, the forests of New South Wales and in Victoria, also over um, the Kakadu National Park, which, which also brought in Aboriginal issues. So, I mean, one of the emerging conflicts, actually, eventually, certainly tensions, was the, you know, between environmental and Aboriginal concerns, because they didn't always go together, of course, and some of those tensions have opened up even more in the years since. But though I was certainly opening up in the 1980s, but it's a, a really major period, I think, in environmental politics and the rise of the Greens Party, um, which, you know, obviously became much more significant in the 1990s. But, you know, it was in a position to form really a part of the government in Tasmania by 1989. So Labor came to office in, in Tasmania in, in the late 80s, but only with the support of the Greens MPs, which was the first such arrangement, I think, anywhere in the world at that time. So very important part of the politics of the period. And I've often wondered too, I mean, when people, outsiders, scholars look at Australia's bicentenary of 1988, they notice how prominent land and landscape has been in Australian identity. So when, when people articulate, what is it that's distinctive about Australia in the late 1980s? They would talk about the land. And I wonder whether that particular way of thinking about national identity was also a help to the environmental movement, that it too was able to point to the land and that it, it absorbed people's identities, their sense of, of, of their selves, in a way that perhaps a less landscape-oriented national identity, you know, wouldn't have. Oh, Tasmania, the hardest heart would understand Just to feel your wilderness beside To be something worth fighting for 
The environmental movement scored a major victory in July 1983 when the High Court handed down its decision prohibiting the Tasmanian government proceeding with the Gordon Below Franklin Dam project. Under intense lobbying from the environmental groups, the Hawke government successfully argued to the court that it be allowed to use its external powers to protect the wilderness area of southwest Tasmania as part of the World Heritage listing. The decision was significant, not just for halting the dam, but for setting a precedent where federal constitutional power won out over state rights. Triple Z journalist Dan Flannery followed the Franklin Dam dispute from the start with more than usual journalistic dedication. Listeners may remember his reports, including this one in January, which brought the mainland the first news of the embattled blockaders when the bulldozers hit the small town of Strawn. Right, well things are finally starting to happen here at Strawn from this public telephone box where I'm ringing. I can see a large blue police bus with people being loaded in en masse. What's happening is the bulldozer, this looks like it's been brought down last night. I can't actually see it, I'm about 100 yards away. Quite exhausted after having run four miles through the bush, which is hard for anyone, especially a journalist. But um, the reason there is that the police have actually blocked off the conservationist camp about two miles out of town, and they've put roadblocks all around it, not allowing anyone through. That's uh, medical people, journalists and uh, lawyers. And things are quite ha happening at a rapid rate down here. People have constructed a couple of makeshift bridges across the creeks, and people are actually diving and swimming across trying to get down here to the wharf. The skeleton staff on surveillance has, I think, all been arrested by now. What happened last night, or reports that are through, are that the phone lines into Strawn and in and out of Strawn were actually cut, so that people weren't aware of what was going on. I've been able to ring through now, so I can't confirm that rumour, but definitely the, phone, the phones to the wilderness headquarters here in Strawn were out of action last night. Um, police are also going around the roads here, rounding up anyone on the roads. It looks perhaps suspicious. I managed to escape that by um, borrowing a dog on a leash from a local caravan park, and I've been asked twice what I'm doing, and we're walking the dog down towards the wharf where things are starting to happen. This was planned as the mass action, like the bulldozer is the final straw. There are planned to be up to 400 people here. There might be many less than that, given the police are blocking it off, but it's very much a police action here, whether that's orders from higher above or whether the Tasmanian police have just decided to shed their good guy image, it's hard to tell. The rain's just pouring down here and the winds are howling, so it's a grey day in Tasmania, but it's a much blacker day for Tasmanian Premier Grey and for Tasmanian Justice, indeed for Prime Minister Fraser if he doesn't intervene. Dan Flannery and Strawn. Following the High Court decision six months later, Dan spoke to Bob Brown of the Tasmanian Wilderness Society. You see it as perhaps ironic that today's decision was handed down in the home city of the only state government that supported Tasmania in pushing for the dam. No, I don't see it as ironic. Uh, there's been majority support for saving the Franklin River here in Queensland, as there is majority support for saving uh, Morton Island and uh, the other areas that are of this magnificent environment of this state. And I do know the Premier of the state has been uh, taken aback by today's decision. But it's, times are moving fast and the affairs of humanity are moving fast. And I venture to say that the Premier hasn't moved as fast as those times have. <laughs> and, um, I, would, I would simply say that it is a great decision. It's significant that it's been in Queensland and uh, it may augur well for the future of Queensland.
You were just listening to a 1985 broadcast from 4ZZZ on the Franklin Dam disputes. Before that, you were listening to historian Frank Bongiorno. Some of the momentous struggles to preserve Queensland's natural heritage included campaigns to stop the development of the Daintree rainforest in the north and the rejection of uranium mining. The Bjorki-Peterson government mounted a high court challenge against the 1984 implementation of the Hawke federal government's three mines policy limiting uranium mines. In 1985, 4ZZZ's Amanda College gave Joe a call. Hello? Mr Peterson, Amanda Collins from Z. Are you seriously considering a High Court challenge to the ALP National Conference well, I, decision? I, I, yes, and I don't know how more serious I can be than that. I just don't talk for the pleasure of talking. We naturally are very definitely looking at that, yes. And why have you made that decision? Simply because it's not right, it's not constitutionally right, that the Commonwealth can support or assist one state and uh, do the opposite to another state. And under what law will you mount a High Court challenge? Oh, well, that, that's, uh, that's under the part of the Constitution, that's, and that's out. There's no need to go into this section and so on. Mr Wright says that any High Court challenge on the uranium issue is doomed and will only waste taxpayers' money. Well, if anything, if, if you want to take any notice of Mr Wright and what he says, that's your business. I wouldn't be humbugged reading it. Yeah. Have you been receiving legal advice on, on the matter? Oh, well, don't worry about that. Just uh, don't be stupid. What else do you think I'm doing? Well, Mr Peterson, isn't the Ben Lomond mine mined by a French-owned company? I mean, it's not even mined by an Australian company, is it? Oh, well, look, don't let's worry about all that. Have you got anything else of interest? Is it owned by a French company or an Australian company? Well, you ought to find that out. You uh, are so clever. No, if you want to make trouble... You just look up the uh, register and find out who owns it and what's what. If that is um, the fact, which I believe it is, isn't it understandable that the government wouldn't want to continue that mine because the, the French have proved themselves to be irresponsible when it comes oh, to look, the handling of nuclear silly. tests? Look, let's get on to something sensible. Come on, have you got anything else? What will your reaction be if uh, Mr Wright and the Queensland ALP delegates at the National Conference manage to pass a motion which will back moves to put the Daintree area on the World Heritage Listing. Oh, that is, you can be dead sure that they're always trying to knock the Labor Party and they don't want any of the people up there in that remote part that have been living there for years to have a, a decent road. They haven't got one there and I can just imagine that's exactly what the Labor Party would want to do. Well, the Environment Minister, Mr Khan, has um, told Mr Wright that he will support the move, so it looks like it will oh, go ahead. Oh, don't let's worry about him, for goodness sake. He's been lost so long and has said so many stupid things. Don't let's get arguing about what he said and he didn't say. Mm. Well, what will the Queensland state government's reaction be to that move? Oh, look, I don't even worry about it. I know you, I'll let you do all the worrying. That's, that's sufficient. And then there's plenty of worrying that I don't.
In July 1989, Bob Hawke made a famous Our Country, Our Future speech that the Australian Labor Party would plant a billion trees to combat soil erosion and declared the 1990s the decade of land care. This was a widely popular decision vindicated by the environment movement. We will now hear from Nikki Hungerford, who has a long history of campaigning with the Queensland Conservation Council on one of the most contentious issues of the 1990s and onwards, and is one of the grassroots activists that saw the Beattie government implement the Vegetation Management Act in 1999. She tells us how the Premier, Joe Bjorki-Peterson himself, was instrumental in the accelerated rate of deforestation in Queensland. He actually invented a very fast, efficient way of clearing trees, and that was getting two big bulldozers and a very big chain. Each link was about 30 centimetres wide of chain between two bulldozers, and they could just clear massive swathes very quickly of land. So you can visualise that. It would be like matchsticks falling down. Yeah. There was an encouragement for um, clearing for agricultural purposes, but unfortunately they didn't take into account the marginalness of the land, and so a lot of land was being cleared that should never have been cleared. Subsequently, there's been a lot of problems since. Weeds, salinity, erosion, wrong soils. So there's some soils, if you clear, you know, you literally tip a cup of water, and I've seen this, you tip a cup of water of it and it just starts falling apart. They think they're called sodic soils. Mm. People didn't have a big enough understanding or didn't care enough and just saw it for a short-term gain or didn't understand that removing the trees was going to increase the salinity. Hundreds and hundreds of species have been lost, groups of species that become extinct, but then there's, there's a whole lot of stuff we still don't even know exists. When you read the media from that period of time, it's it's either the Kurumal or the Country Life, that, and the Country Life is very very anti-green. Yeah, yeah the Kurumal yeah. is all very pro the land clearing laws, mostly. They were then, <laughs> not now. No, so it was really interesting that, that that you've got this more middle ground that wasn't portrayed in the media at all. So in the height of the land clearing campaign in the nineties, there was a big land care conference um, in Longreach. There was a lot of people very very angry. And we, me and I was coordinator of QCC back then and the then we had a rural liaison officer and we said, come on, let's go. And you could just feel the aggression when we pulled up and we took a deep breath. But we'd been working very closely with the Cattlemen's Union, the Graziers Association, and they had this idea that we needed to take the heat out. And particularly Longreach was one of the yeah, hot spots. And so what we decided to do was a debate. The head of Cattlemen's Union, Graziers, and there was another, I can't remember the other organisation, they were the Greenies. And me, a person who worked for Department of National Parks and the Rural Liaison Officer, we were being the farmers and I had twin set and pearls and lippy on and a bit of grass <laughs> hanging out of my mouth and they had my old hippie T-shirts on and peace signs and wigs and we did this debate and it was hysterical It was and it went brilliantly. We were all nervous as hell and, of course, the hippie greeny guys won the debate saying that land clearing was wrong and what we'd done was gone through the country life and pulled out all the outrageous quotes and that's how <laughs> that was how our debate was and everyone sat back and realized what an irrational debate that they were having and realizing the rationality and it took all the heat out and the next two days we were getting hugs and um, big chats and you know still debates but realizing 
where we were coming from and what it was all about just again took that heat out. direct actions? Not that I can really recall, as in no one jumped in front of bulldozers and stuff. There's lots of discussions about how we could halt bulldozers. But no, it was, you know, we're talking hundreds of kilometres from not very big towns. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and we're talking 45 degrees in summer yeah. kind of stuff. I do remember once the Courier Mail, there was a big illegal land clearing happening out at Alpha and the Courier Mail flew me up with the journalist and we flew into town and Alpha's tiny and everyone was really gobsmacked and um, they were like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what are you doing here? And they went, what, what, what are you here to talk about? And they went land clearing and they went, oh, thank God. And we went, really? <laughs> and they said, someone had just done a circumcision with an axe or something really weird was happening out there and they thought that we were coming to report on that and so they were relieved we were coming to talk about that. But that was massive clearing and an illegal clearing. It was a tragedy, yeah. Mm. So did the Vegetation Management Act when it came in in 1999 stem some of the problems? Yes, it did stem. Yeah, I mean, it really created a lot more heat but it started people becoming more and more aware and, you know, we'd pushed it to a level so that legislation that came in and it, what it did was actually helped just bring in more regulations and, and least people having to have permits and understanding about what can and can't be done. And from what I understand, this is one of the first times of a shift from the state government of actually intervening on private land use issues, which mm. was quite interesting. But in 2003, there was a moratorium on land clearing declared because there was still a lot of land clearing going ahead. And that then, again, created a lot of heat. Mm. But there was a lot of understanding that the things were just getting out of control. But you could do a permit at the pub on the back of a serviette saying, well, here's my property and I want to clear this bit. So it wasn't fantastic. It was, of course, it was to what it was. So, so the people giving the permits weren't going out to see whether that was even necessary. Oh, sometimes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, there wasn't a lot of staff. People were hostile to them. I mean, you know, recently, last year, it was a land clearing issue in New South Wales and a National Parks guy went in and was shot dead. Yeah. So, like, this is a, you know, it is such an emotive thing. And so, you know, it was hard on the, the government staff as well. So how do you think that the Vegetation Management Act was received by farming groups? Were any of them in favour of it? No, no. And, if, and I understand, you know, farmers don't want to be dictated to what they want to do. Mm. But, you know, something had to be done because there was people not doing the right thing. Yeah, 
Nationally, grassroots actions were achieving gains for the environment. The Franklin Dam in the 1980s had set the stage for non-violent direct actions, and Australian activists became renowned internationally for their lock-on and tree-set techniques. What sort of tactics would you expect the blockaders to use? People have learnt a lot from the first uh, blockade experience last sort of December, and um, similar tactics will be used, except they're into a sort of a, a mark, a mark two and mark three version where they're a lot more sophisticated. Uh, people will be in holes uh, as they were in the first blockade. They're putting their lives on the line. The only way that machinery can get past them is across them. Um, they're going to be very well secured in, in these holes, buried up to their necks. Uh, there's, there'll be logs across the road which people will be chained all to. The only way they can move them with uh, some of the techniques that we've used is to lift the whole logs up with heavy machinery with people on it and certainly we don't expect that sort of tactics to come from the contractors at all. We're not, we're not, the whole campaign's not aimed at the contractors. It's not aimed at the people that want the road to go through. It's aimed at uh, trying to change the people's consciousness about the wet tropical rainforests of North Queensland. The Cape Tribulation area is, is a very, very magnificent area and very biologically significant with um, very unusual and ancient species of plants. But there are many other areas between Ingham and Cooktown that have patches of these uh, wet tropical rainforests. And they're threatened too. There's, there's one at Downey Creek, which is... Uh, has logging going on in the upper catchment. When they finish logging there, they want to get down into this other very beautiful pristine area. How can people in Brisbane help if they want to? If people wish to come up at this time, we think that we encourage them completely to come up. We, we can't specify the date, but we certainly feel that it's between now and the, and the 6th of August. People can come straight to the blockade and be a part of the camp. We need people with skills such as NVA training, we need people as cooks, we need people at the front line, we need media people, we need technicians for the communications. People can, uh, if they find that they're working or something like that, that's fine. There's a, always a desperate need for money. People can uh, send the money direct to the blockade or contact the Wilderness Society. There's a lot of activities going on with the Stafford by-election. Um, yes, people can lend help in any way, moral support, letters, letters to the editors, things like this. But particularly we need people up here right now. Planted in the summer, blooming in the spring You may not like the harvest or what the fruits bring You don't own this thing when you shake the tree down, you don't know what you started. Cause you don't know what you started. No, you don't.
I'm feeling the freedom when you democratize Join us up in the sky, boy that means that you're alive Trust the sonic, crack some eggs to make the omelet Better let them bomb it, baby this is springtime Look at what we got parted, tree will wear what we wanted I hope the plan that we install is my vote If not then sniper and murder she wrote, got it Locked in, Locked your type of awesome Seems shocking with a headshot on a head of state. Your peace can devastate. Our peace can't wait for the moment. Thought we owned it. The truth hurt. Ruffled the hem of a blue skirt. Then forgotten. Back to the well to drink the poison water. Freedom doesn't begin in springtime like it would. in the summer, blooming in the spring. You may not like the harvest or what the fruits bring. You don't own this thing. But their rise to power wasn't without friction. Of course, logging and resource companies had run-ins with greenies, but so did Aboriginal people as well. Scholar Bronwyn Levy has seen this in her examination of the poetry of Judith Wright and Ujiru Nunakul. The, the discussion about that is very much about big business, um, you know, in Tasmania, this unnecessary damming of First, first Lake Pedder, which was dammed and then the, the Franklin was actually saved. Um, capitalism, you know, the old forests, let's, let's keep them. Um, that connects to Aboriginal questions at certain points. But I, I, think, I think it's probably true to say, although, you know, it's a big discussion, so there's, there's always a whole lot of things going on, but I think the environmental movement wasn't thinking too much, the white environmental movement wasn't thinking too much about Aboriginal issues in the early days. Um, there, there would be some connection, but not a lot. These days, as we know, um, there's points of difference sometimes. Um, sometimes Aboriginal people will work with environmentalists and sometimes not. And of course, there's no one position um, among environmentalists or Aboriginal people anyway. So I guess Aboriginal people, we might understand pre-colonisation, are involved. Like, like The land doesn't just exist in a wilderness sense. They work with it. They manage it, they light fires to encourage particular kinds of plants and certain animals to come so they can eat them and fish and, and so forth. So they, they engaged with the land in their care of country. Um, some of the ideas about wilderness don't necessarily connect with that, but it's, it's a very big discussion, so I, I don't, you know, I'm generalising a bit, I'm just saying I don't think the fit between Aboriginal land rights and environmental movements is straightforward or necessarily even necessarily even always there. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. It's it's a, a complicated story. Very interesting. Yeah, it seems that it's one of those things that I guess from a, from the distance of the years, it's sort of easy to see that there is um, a relationship. Of course, cause and consequence there when there, that's not the way that it was experienced yeah. at the time. In, environmentalists um, are concerned to preserve and to save important and beautiful areas of the Australian country and, of course, to make sure that plants and animals don't become extinct. We've lost a lot of animals, um, as, as we know. Um, Aboriginal people also don't want <laughs> plants and animals to become ex extinct, but in their history, they're part of the land that those animals live in. So, so they're they're inside what white Australians might call a landscape from the outside. Um, they, you know, the country owns them. Challenge them for white people is to try and think about it in that way as well. It involves a whole 
way of thinking a whole whole spirituality. Aboriginal people don't see themselves as separate from the land, they're part of it. Planted in the summer, blooming in the spring You may not like the harvest or what the fruits bring You don't own this thing, you don't own this garden When you shake the tree down, you don't know what you started Not all environmentalists could be said to be blind to the conflict. At the same time as they were winning political victories, some environment groups were taking a more human rights perspective. With Friends of the Earth becoming the first to support and work with the land rights movement, engaging with the human face of environmental issues. At 4ZZZ, in its early form as the Peace and Environment Show, Greenies were attempting to bridge the gap. The program's coordinators described it in a 1995 Zed publication as a culture positive music and news deli that seeks to ferret out the ironies lurking beneath this allegedly comfortable existence. David Beach, or Wave as he is known, was involved in the program from its early days. When I started at this show, it was the Peace and Environment Show, uh, which was in about the early 90s, 92. I had recently moved into West End, that wondrous enclave of politicism and stuff, and joined my first political group, Men Against Sexual Assault. So I'd been coming in to do some interviews. I'd, I'd been a, someone who'd become a listener. I'd actually come in and done some volunteering because they'd recently, only in the last year or two, moved into the premises here in the valley. But so I was coming in to be interviewed about uh, the March that was going on on the news shows and then came in on the Peace and Environment show and met Damien Legoulagon, who done his time... I think he'd been involved with the show a couple of years and was kind of looking for an opportunity to get out of it, disinvolved. And so two weeks later, there I was running the show. But I'd met Damien through living in West End. He was a part of the Catholic worker movement, which was very strong at that time. So I guess, um, yeah, that meant for me, I wasn't uh, really coming from that community, but I ended up learning a lot about it, I guess. And that was kind of the point. It was a part of my own trajectory, which from my heritage, which was country people and very practical kind of these old migrant German Lutherans. That of course you take a bag shopping, that's just what you do, or your garden, you know, and these things that are just normal. But of course, for a whole swathe of reasons, they're things that are from a, another side of thinking. And uh, well, peace, peace and environment show. So this, that show then had much more of an emphasis on the peace movement as well, which you know, we've evolved the name on from that name. But I think actually even a previous evolution of the name, and I'm a bit guessing, but I know that it's a show that goes back with older roots into the 80s, and which was an era of the Nuclear Disarmament Party and that kind of movement. So I, my, this is my suspicion that it evolved from that. And yeah, there was a real togetherness about that era of that time too, I've got to say. When, when it was all voluntary, um, there was still kind of that real growing and building stage and and watching you know really was it was so absolutely youth radio too kids coming in or young people also but sometimes you know kids from school and after school and you'd see them get a position of authority because there wasn't always people to do stuff and just watching people grow into themselves and into positions because they had the opportunity and the allowance to do so was just one of the most beautiful wonderful things really Probably one of the first March kind of things which I got on the street with was Palm Sunday Rally. 
So I guess it was that Christian origin. And I mean, my heritage is Christian, but I haven't kind of followed things with that kind of inspiration. But, you know, it does seem now that I look back on it, some, you know, justice aspect of what Jesus was on about. But anyway, it just linked in anyway with common sense stuff about, you know, we don't, why are we killing each other or why are we poisoning the earth and let alone poisoning water, which is very essential to life. You know, there's this trajectory it's been on of, you know, reporting all these bad news stories. And I think it kind of continued like, has continued like that. Uh, I came back around in the early noughties, 2001. I was living up the Sunshine Coast and joined back in with a team. So there'd been some new people come on since Barry and there was a rotation going on. Some people that he had brought in to the show and everyone kind of had their own little take on things and, and I guess bringing the issues that they were passionate about to it. By this time, I think it was back to the one hour. And it was one of the people involved in that time is Linda Rose. And it was in chatting with her that the idea came, you know, this peace in environment. Oh, my God, that sounds like such a 70s hippies typical kind of a statement. We need to update this. I think I'd actually even on one of my bits of travel ended up in Nimbin. And because they knew that I was involved in this kind of radio, I'd ended up presenting their environment show there which they called eco radio i'm pretty sure so i just kind of went hey there's a snazzy name part of that though was also an idea to kind of i guess bring in more of a lifestyle element uh, to bring in more of a positive story element where you know the whole kind of sustainability aspect of stuff was starting to come to the fore more it wasn't so much just about protesting of course that kind of stuff still went on but uh trying to work towards yeah, giving a positive side to the issues that are out there. But I was always amazed at how I'd ask people, were you in the in-group at school? No, no one was ever from the in-group at school who ended up here. <laughs> and you get some, you know, that's where you get your unique space for unique characters. When the groundwork was laid Our hearts and heads were strong We could This episode 13 of Radio in Colour was recorded at the Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland as well as radios 4EB and 4ZZZ. We would be lost without Brisbane's cultural institutions which have made us all feel very welcome. The Multicultural Development Association of Queensland is a proud sponsor of Radio in Colour. This show was produced by Kim Stewart, Carolina Kaliaba and Stephen Riggle. Ni Eddie Proyibi is our sound engineer and Blair Martin is our trainer. My name is Ula Sheha. Special thanks to our guests today Sam and Kathy Watson, Nikki Hungerford, Bronwyn Levy, Kathleen Cameron, and 4ZZZ's Wave, D Beach, and Leon Petro. You can listen back to our stories on the 4ZZZ website. 4ZZZFM.org.au Thank you for listening. No, you don't know what you